there is a prime mover of some kind. There is a higher power. There is a God. And I'm not it. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast, Episode 5. Today we finish our sit-down with Bob, who in our second episode shared his experience in getting sober and what it was like before. Today Bob tells us what it's been like after, working with others, then a deep dive into his own concept of a higher power. Lastly, we talk about his lung cancer diagnosis and how he's living with that within the framework built on these principles in AA. Let's get started. Okay, uh, last we talked about, I was mentioning that I had a sponsor very early on. Matter of fact, before I ever went to my first meeting. And uh, this guy just grabbed me and told me he was going to be my sponsor. And uh, he and I worked together for probably the better part of a year on the steps. And it was probably the best thing I ever did. And one of the reasons why I've been able to stay sober all these years. The big book says that drinking is but a symptom of our disease. And I've come to believe that through and through. Um, We didn't just drink because it tasted good or because we liked it. We drank because we were trying to bury our feelings. At least that is my belief. And that those feelings get stirred up by stuff we barely remember and is in our subconscious. Times when we hated our parents, times when we beat up our little brother, times that we did things we know we shouldn't have, times that we stole from people. We've all got those things on our past and they have to be dealt with if in fact you're going to live a happy life sober. And so I made a list of all people, no, I made a list of all the people I had resentments towards, including myself, my parents, my siblings, and goddamn near everybody I talked to between then and now. Uh, And I uh, wrote a paragraph about why I was upset with them and uh, what it did to me in terms of my uh, sex relations, financial condition, all all the things that are spelled out in the big book. And then finally the column that says, what was our part in it? Sometimes that was very hard to see, but if I gave it enough work and talked about it enough, um, or wrote about it enough, it would eventually come clear that I had a piece in just about every one of those resentments. So, I remember going to Bill's house. He lived over near, near Welsher Golf Course. I remember going to his house on a Saturday morning and sitting down with my computer printed list and going through it one by one with him and him managing to stay awake. And so we completed the fifth step. And that was a big load off my mind. And the effects were, I don't know if they were immediate, but they sure were there very quickly after I completed my fifth step. I no longer felt that I had to be concerned about what anyone thought of me. I wasn't concerned about people coming 
up to me and saying I owed them money or, you know, I was bad to their kid or whatever it may be. I felt like I could face the world head on and accept my responsibility for things that I had done that I wasn't proud of and uh, take care of the uh, aftermath. And taking care of the aftermath was six, seven, eight, and nine. Steps, six, seven, eight, and nine. As I recall working with Bill, six was pretty straightforward. After we finished our fifth step, sitting in Bill's living room, he suggested I either go home or just go out in his backyard and spend a few minutes on six and seven. And so I can remember sitting on his picnic table with a big book in my hand, reading six and seven. And uh, repeating the six step prayer, the seven step prayer. And then moving on to eight and nine. I made a list of all people I had harmed and sat down with Bill and talked about what form an amend should take, whether in fact I should talk to this person, if I should be prepared to make financial amends, living amends, uh, sincere apologies. An amend can take all of those forms. And in some cases, I had to write checks, and I did. And uh, in most cases, I had to sit down and look them in the eye and tell them what I had done. Most of them didn't even remember anything. And uh, Did you have any bad experiences, like where somebody just didn't want to see you or talk? You know, I don't remember anything like that, Alfredo. Um, I did have a couple of people who sort of tolerated the process more than welcomed it. Hmm. Um, most of the people that I had on my list were were fairly sophisticated folks who knew who knew about the. 12 steps of AA, at least had a passing knowledge of them, and so understood the amends process and, and uh, made it easy for me to do. Um, in some cases, they refused payment if I clearly owed them money, and I said, I can't do that, I got to do something. And I said, what's your favorite charity? And they told me, and I said, okay, I'm going to make a charitable donation in your name to that charity in the amount that we've agreed I owe you. And they said, okay. So there's all kinds of ways of working around the, the reaction of the other person. And Were there any amends that you couldn't make? Either the person was impossible to find or deceased. How were you able to make those amends? The real tough ones in that regard were my parents. Both my parents were gone by then. And I sat down and wrote them each a letter. And it was, it was really hard to do. It brings tears to my eyes now, thinking about it. But I'm pretty well convinced that almost all of us owe an amend to our parents because none of us were perfect children. We made their life miserable sometimes, or certainly I did. And so um, making those amends, even to people who were dead, was important to do. It just cleared the slate, cleared my background. 
Um, finally, I had to make amends to myself. And sometimes that's forgotten by some sponsors, but by the time we're ready to do all this work on ourselves and do it to the best of our ability, we see the kind of damage we have done to ourselves through our behavior in our earlier life. And in some ways that's that's not any kind of amend one can can make and be done with it. It's got to be in a living amend where one says that, you know, I, I will do my very best to not behave in that way again. How hard was it to forgive yourself? That's a real good question. We're making the assumption that I have forgiven myself. That's right. And I'm not sure I know how true that is. I'm not saying it's not true. I think I probably did the best I could to forgive myself for previous behavior. I tend to be the kind of guy that accepts responsibility for something, even if I don't think it's mine. And in this case, I, uh, you know, I, it was clear what my, what my behavior was like and the drinking that I did and the damage I caused my family. It was hard. Beyond that, I'm not sure I can say in much detail, except it's something I spent a lot of time on. And generally, I would, I would write a letter to the individual to whom I owed an amend, including myself. And I generally wrote it to myself as a younger me, knowing what I know now about the effects of alcohol and damaging behavior and stuff that it does. And that was helpful in the long run. It made it made my alcoholism a little more real to me. And it made it, it helped me remember what I had just gone through with the first seven steps and not wanting to have to repeat all that. So I think it helped me stay sober as well. So what kind of things do you do to maintain your sobriety today? Well, let me give you an example maybe trite, but it's something that just happened. I had noticed towards the end of last week, and now it's Saturday, so just the last few days, I had noticed that I had been really irritable with the people around me. And before I really registered it, I had been cranky, with a girlfriend. I've been cranky with my kids. I've been cranky with my brother. I've been cranky with a couple of fellow AA members. So I've been pretty hard to get along with. And I didn't know why, and I still don't know why I have that crankiness. Other than I've got a lot of stuff to do to prepare for what's about to happen. And, uh, I still feel a little time pressure. But that was reversion to an earlier form of behavior for me. It wasn't the way I wanted to behave. So I got together with each of those people individually and expressed my regret for having been cranky and said I would do my best. I'd try harder to not be an asshole. How was that received? It was all received good. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them said, you know, I didn't think you were cranky, Daddy. I said, oh, yeah, you did. I I felt I was cranky, and that's what counts. But anyhow, um, that that's just something I, I felt was important to do to walk my talk. Keeping your side of the street clean. Exactly. 
And I can think of several times that's happened through my years of sobriety where I've gone back, put everything on hold, and sat down with somebody and made an amend. You asked me if there was anybody I couldn't make amends to, and there was one person that I had harmed 40, 50 years ago, and I had lost complete track of her, and my sponsor asked me to see if I could find her, and this was in the days before the internet, and I wasn't able to. And so he had me just write a letter to her and put it in my file. Years later, working with a different sponsor, he had me rewrite the letter and send it to her. We had found her by that time. And it was a situation where I certainly did not want her family to be involved or have any knowledge of it. So uh, I did write her a letter. I mailed it to the address or emailed it to her address that I had. And very vaguely, said enough to that would she'd know what I was talking about and just apologized again and told her what I had that I'd been sober for a while and never heard back from her. How do you feel about that? It's a mixed feeling in that I'm obviously glad that, you know, I didn't get served with papers or some goddamn thing because she had my contact information. And then, and secondly, um, I guess somewhat disappointed that maybe we didn't connect. You have closure? I think so. I think so, yeah. I've done what I can do. How do you get closure when you can't get closure? Well, you got to keep in mind that, first of all, making amends is not necessarily for the person that you owe an amend to. It's really for you. And it's to help clear your mind and conscience of something that you know deserves some action. And by contacting the person and making the offer to do what you could to correct the amend, you have cleaned your side of the street. The person to whom you're making the amend, their reaction to that, whether it's, oh, you're a wonderful person and big hugs, or whether it's get away, you asshole, I never want to see you again. You know, that's their choice. You can't control that. But you have done what you need to do. If I were working with you, I'd say you've done what you can. Let's switch gears then. Talk about your concept of a higher power. Well, besides being a recovering alcoholic, I'm a recovering Catholic. And... My mother was a pretty conservative, old-school Roman Catholic Irish. And we went to church every day. Not every day, every Sunday. And we sat there dutifully, and I looked at the back of the pew in front of me and just tried to make it through what was an interminable something going on that I didn't understand, was spoken in a foreign language, and uh, what little I knew about it, I wanted to raise my hand and ask questions. And so as I got older, and uh, all the way through high school, we, we still went to church at home. And actually at one point, when I was maybe nine or ten, I think I lost my uh, antipathy towards Catholicism, and I actually thought about being a priest. I became an altar boy. And I used to be the guy that would 
I don't know, hold the the smoky thing or uh, pass whatever the priest needed. I can't remember, but I did that for several years. Father Bob does have a nice ring to it, though. Oh, it does. Yeah, there's lots of Father Bobs out there. But not this Bob. That didn't last real long. Um, after I went to college, and it, even in college, I was required to go to some kind of service on Sunday. Didn't make any difference which one I went to, but you had to go to a service. And so I generally chose the Catholic service and, and attended Mass. Um, but after that, I, I really had no religion. I had, however, received you know, a lot of training in catechism school when I was real young. And in college, had to take a course in comparative religions, which I really liked. And still to this day, I read books on comparative religions. And as a matter of fact, in my view, if you take all the religions in the world and you pile them up here in my office and look at them, they'd all boil down to all saying the same damn thing. Which is? Which is, be good, be good to others, do the best you can. Words to that effect. And every religion says that. It's just the way they go about it. And in many cases, the attitude of a lot of the religions that they have the answers and all the rest of you people are going to go to hell. And that's kind of universal. But I remember hearing that in catechism school when I was 10 years old and thought, now wait a minute. That just doesn't make sense. My buddy Alfredo, who lives down the street from me, you know, he goes to the other church, the Protestant church. And you're telling me he's going to go to hell because he doesn't go to the same church I do? That's a bunch of bullshit. I know the guy. He's a good guy. And I would get into arguments with priests over that. Anyhow, um, I still have that attitude towards religion. I don't need an any intermediary between me and God to tell God what I'm thinking. If I want to pray, I can do it myself. I also don't need help in figuring out what God is trying to say to me. Because I've learned to meditate, although I don't do it very often, because I've learned to meditate, I believe that prayer is when we talk to God and meditation is when we listen for God to answer. And so you got to do both. You can't do just one. And because I have those two skills, to a degree, I feel like I don't need some guy wearing a funny-looking costume acting as an agent for me when it comes to God. And finally, I guess I've got to talk about the whole concept of God. Um, from taking that comparative religions class and my time as a Catholic, I was familiar with the, with the proof of the existence of God by Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was a very famous saint. He was a real person back in the early Middle Ages. But he was a thinker. And he was trying to proved for himself that there was a God. And he said, well, um, I have been exposed to the concept of cause and effect. That if I do something, something is going to result. If I bang on that radiator over there, 
that radiator can do several things. It can break, crack the casting, it can leak, or it can put out more heat. If I study quantum physics, I can learn about quanta, quanti, the quantum particles, and understand their interaction and what happens when they interact. And I can decide I want to paint that wall and decide that it's worth my time, it's worth the money I want to spend, and all I got to do is pick a color I like and get some brushes and I can paint that wall. And the effect will be a nice looking wall, a little more color in this place. So the, the concept of for every cause there is an effect is pretty solid in my head. If I drive down highway at 100 miles an hour, sooner or later I'm going to run into something. You can't do things like that and not have consequences. So if I take Thomas Aquinas's satisfaction that for every cause there is an effect, I can start building a logic chain from where you and I are sitting today that what we are doing is you have asked me to talk about my sobriety and there's going to be a recording and some people are going to actually listen to it. And from those people, there's going to be some who will believe my bullshit and follow a similar path to mine and we'll, we'll be able to maintain a long-term sobriety. And we will have done good together. If I decide I need a few bucks and I go down the street and hold up the 7-Eleven, that's going to have consequences as well. I'll get arrested. I'll get what money I stole from the 7-Eleven taken away from me. And I will be punished by going to jail and having the money that I had taken away from me, paying a fine. Those are all effects. But if you take the universe as we know it and you start looking at, on a dark night, looking at the sky, and the best place I've been able to do this is at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It is the most spiritual place I know. And if you, you, you lay there on a sandbar, surrounded by these rocks that are billions of years old, and you look up in the night sky, and of course, you're in the middle of a really dry desert. There's no humidity. There's generally no clouds. There's nothing to get in the way of you and the stars. So they're real clear, and there's bazillions of them. You take a logic chain, and you can go back from quantum theory to how all those stars got there. But at some point, we really don't know how those stars got there. There is a prime mover of some kind. There is a higher power. There is a God. And I'm not it. And that's all I really need to have to have a faith in some kind of higher power. I don't draw the picture of the, that you see in so many churches and religious paintings and stuff of, of uh, you know, uh, somebody of Arabian descent dressed like an Arab, um, look, you know, being portrayed as God. I don't think that's how it works. But I do think there is something out there that is a higher power that created the world we live in. Having had a spiritual awakening, and it certainly sounds like you have, 
What then is your experience with carrying the message? Step 12. You know, there is, once someone has established themselves within the AA framework and is walking the talk, going to meetings regularly, uh, you know, becoming a trusted servant of the group, trying to live the best life they can. There comes a time where you need to keep your knowledge and your attitudes and your the fervor that most people have in early sobriety. You got to keep that awake somehow. And the I think the best way to do it is volunteering to be someone's sponsor and uh, helping them become integrated into the AA way of life. And because it really is a way of life, it's, it's not a cult, it's not a religion, it's not a bunch of guys singing around, holding hands, singing kumbaya. It's, it's a way to live life and interact with other people. And it's a damn good way to do that, unlike the life we lived when we were drinking. And so to carry that message, you know, if I see a new guy in the, in the meeting, I'll go up and try to talk to him afterwards. And serving as a sponsor takes some training. I mean, we get trained by doing the work under the guidance of a person that we respect. In other words, my sponsor taught me how to do the steps, and that's generally how I teach other people to do the steps. But over the years, you change a little bit, you refine things, you, you learn what really helps somebody get it and what doesn't. And so it, the first person you sponsor is probably going to get the, the short end of the stick. But after you've had a few, you'll, you'll, you'll have a system down where you know what you want to emphasize and how to, how to say it in a way that gets it across and what the passages in the big book, which ones are really important. When I work with people, I make sure they read the big book but they read it on their own. And if they read some stuff that doesn't make sense to them, you know, we spend some time going over it. I have new people write a lot, either by computer or longhand, if that's what they want to do. But when we talk about the first step as an example, where the key point is that our lives had become unmanageable, became powerless over alcohol, point one, and point two, our lives had become unmanageable. And uh, I have them follow a process that I learned when I went through treatment at Presbyterian St. Luke's years ago, where I have them write three times uh, a description of what they felt like when they had told themselves they weren't going to drink, but they did. We've all experienced that, every one of us. And uh, I had them write that out what it felt like before you drank, how it felt when you decided to drink, when you drank, and when it was over. And I know that kind of process helped me understand and really see how powerless I was over alcohol. When you start to pile all that stuff together, 
it, it becomes pretty convincing. We were able to kid ourselves and uh, say, well, I'm going to control my drinking this time. I'm only going to have one. But I don't know a person who's ever been able to do that, that is a true alcoholic. So, I go through the, the steps like that. Earlier this year, you found out you were diagnosed with lung cancer. When did you get that news? I got it on the uh, 13th of March. How did you find out, and how are the principles of this program helping you through this next chapter of your life? Yeah, that's 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 a, another good good topic. You know, here's an here's a an opportunity for me to really walk my talk. Uh, on the thirteenth of March, when I was on my way back from Antarctica, I had received a message from Kaiser while I was down in Antarctica to call them right away. Well, I couldn't call them. There was no, no telephone service. And so I called them when I got back to the States. And they said I, I had had a test just before I went down there. And uh, they said, uh, you have lung cancer. I was not totally surprised, Alfredo. When I was flying in the Air Force and working in the airline business, in the operation, it was high-stress stuff, and I smoked. I smoked two packs a day probably for 10 years, and uh, it caught up with me. So I, uh, after we confirmed the diagnosis, when I got back here, they you know, had gone into my lung and got a piece of tissue and did a biopsy on it. Um, I sat down with my kids and told them what was going on. And I had talked with my kids probably starting about 20 years ago. Now that would have been when they were probably 30 years old. They're now in their 50s, my kids. And I just started talking with them then about how our medical system struggles with doing what's best for the patient and what the patient wants. And that I was going to rely on them to make sure that if I ended up faced with what I was facing, which is a terminal diagnosis, that they knew how I wanted to handle it. And so I reminded them, and I've reminded them every couple of weeks as we've gone through this process, that what I have told them is, when and if we've done everything that is logically reasonable to do to try to fix this disease, cancer, um, and there isn't any more steps to do, we were not going to go do miracle-seeking steps. We weren't going to uh, do things like, you know, fly off to Mexico so we could use a unproven medication or something like that. About 20 years ago, I acquired some pills. I, I won't tell you how or why. Well, I'll tell you why, but uh, I won't tell you how I got them. But I've got some pills that I can take that will end everything. And now that Colorado has paid 
has passed the dying with dignity law, I think it's called, where they have pills and they give you a pro process by which you can get them. Um, I'm probably going to follow that process. And when I find things starting to go downhill, you know, I feel pretty good right now. I'm living a normal life pretty much. But at some point, it's going to catch up with me. If I may ask bluntly, how much time do you have left? Yeah, yeah, well, let's do put it bluntly. Um, yeah, basically, maybe six months. Outside, maybe a year. But keep in mind that people who are diagnosed with lung cancer, 85% of them are dead within five years. It's a terminal diagnosis. And if it happens in six months, or if it happens in four and a half years, um, <coughs> the end result is the same. I've lived a long time. I'm 80 years old. I'm an old man. Even though I'm still in good shape and I do lots of stuff, uh, I, I can see I'm slowing down, not only physically but mentally. Especially after all that crap they gave me, uh, chemotherapy and radiation. It causes chemo brain. And things, for a period of time, just don't work quite so well up there. And uh, fortunately, it's dissipating. So I think I'm close to where I was. But you don't, you don't, you're not as sharp as you used to be. Um, and you're also out of energy. You're tired. And I don't ever want to go through that again. And that's what cancer does to you. And so when things start heading south for me, I will get the medication. And I'm going to go right back in my bedroom with some help from the hospice people. And I'm going to end my life. And I can, I can look forward to that as an event in my life. Not a bad event, not a good event. It's just another event in my life. Are you afraid? No. Uh, I do not believe that there's an afterlife. I don't believe in heaven or hell. I believe that when this happens, I will go back to the same state I was in before I was conceived, a state of nothingness. And I also got to say that when I say I am not scared, I say that with a lot of confidence. But who knows when it's time to take the pill, whether I'll be scared or not. I don't know. Has it crossed your mind to take a drink? Not at all. Never. The only thing that would accomplish for me is a sense of disappointment in myself for whatever time I had left between the time I drank and the time things came to a close. And a bad example for people. You remember hearing early in sobriety that you just don't drink. I don't care if your ass has fallen off, you don't drink. And I heard those same things and I, I took them to heart. I've gone through two divorces, one of them very nasty, very nasty, and a bunch of other stuff in my life uh, since I quit drinking. 
and none of them even made me think about taking a drink. There isn't anything that can happen to you, including death, that is so bad that taking a drink won't make it worse. All right. So, what are the proudest moments of your life? Whoa! Um, one of them was when I received an appointment to the Air Force Academy. The other one was when I put up with all the bullshit of the Air Force Academy for four years and graduated. That sounds tough. 90% of the people that apply to the academy don't get in. And of those that do get in, one-third are gone before graduation. What are some of the happiest moments of your life? Every time I got married. (laughs) As you know, I've been married and divorced three times. Mm -hmm. They all started out great. (laughs) Do you have any experiences that you regret not having? You know, I am a very, very lucky guy, Alfredo. I've done some shit that most people can only dream about. I've flown an airplane as fast as it'll go, about Mach 2.8, almost three times the speed of sound. I've flown as high as 75,000 feet, where you can see the curvature of the earth. I've received all kinds of awards during my life. I've received all kinds of kicks in the asses. I cannot think of too many things that I would want to do that I, that I really want to do that I haven't done already. And again, that makes what's about to happen a bit easier to take. And I can walk away, figuratively, walk away from life, being proud of the life I've lived. You know, I'm probably most proud of my three kids. They are all really neat people, friends. When my son was a teenager, There was a question of who was going to kill who first, whether I was going to kill him or he was going to kill me. But there was times when it was close. And we've become, primarily through the amends process, we've become very tight, very tight. My two daughters are wonderful people. They give back to the community. They work hard. They're fun people to be around. They do a lot of the same kinds of crazy things that I did when I was their age. When you were a child, what kind of trouble did you get into? Well, I wasn't a very nice older brother. I have a brother who's four years younger than I am, and I used to be nasty to him. Get out of my way, you little maggot. And I'd get in trouble for that. I'd get in the trouble for taking risks that my mother didn't think I should have. Like jumping off the garage with a Superman cape on, see if I could fly. How did that turn out? That did not involve any broken bones. I found out I couldn't fly. One my brother loves to tell on me is... We grew up in in a part of central New York where it was pretty country, lots of small farms. And so there was lots of woodland around there. And we used to go down to this woodland near where we lived and, you know, fool around in in the woods. And I cut off a tree that was leaning against the crotch of another tree and didn't figure out that if I cut this tree 
and that's the one I was sitting on. I was going to hit the ground. And I was about 20 or 30 feet up with a hatchet. That one broke my ankle. I think you learned something that day. <laughs> I did learn something that day. And uh, what I learned is every one of those little things that most guys do to themselves when they're young, mm -hmm. come back to haunt them when they're 40, 50, 60 years old. That ankle of mine, my right ankle, mm -hmm. finally had so much arthritis in it that I couldn't bend it. Wow. And so I had to have it fused because there weren't any prostheses that could stand me playing squash. So I had it fused. If you look at the x-ray of my ankle, it uh, it looks like somebody's holding a set of deck screws because there's screws going in at that, that ankle joint at every angle. Serious question now. Who was your first kiss? A girl named Susan. I think her last name was Curry. I can't remember. That would have been in about 1951 or two. Where was this at? In the town, small town I grew up in, in central New York. Mm -hmm. She was a, high, or a uh, friend in school. Was it at school? You know, I don't think it was. I don't honestly remember hmm. where it was, but that, that was her. I'm obviously running out of questions. <laughs> Well, thank you for what you're doing, Alfredo. I think this blog idea is a, is a great one. And there's, there's certainly enough strange people in AA that you'll have plenty of material to tell some good stories. And I appreciate being chosen as one of your first ones. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. It's really special. Thank you. Are there any final thoughts you would like to share to the Happy Treasures group? Treasures has been my life for more than 30 years now. And it's what's kept me sober. I've gone to Treasures at least three or four days a week. On and off for 30 years. And I know those people better than anybody else I know. And they know me better than anybody else I know. And it's a great, great bunch of people. Great bunch of people. Once again, it was a pleasure sitting down with Bob. But more importantly, it's been a pleasure to be his friend. I speak for many when I say we love him. Before we go, I'd like to read a quote from Michael Landon. Whatever you want to do, do it now. There are only so many tomorrows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.